on the show. Benjamin, of course, is our go-to guy whenever it comes to all things related to Bitcoin, crypto in general, but as he has told me repeatedly, there really only is one crypto currency worth its salt, worth anything, and that is Bitcoin. And the beautiful thing is, and we spoke earlier about his going to El Salvador. We weren't sure it was going to happen. Now, apparently it did happen. And I can't wait to hear what happened. Welcome to the show, Benjamin. It's good to talk to you, Mark. And uh, I'll tell you what uh, I do miss. I do miss the 30 degree weather and coming back to basically just above zero was not a pleasure. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was great. Went to the Adopting Bitcoin conference that was hosted at the Hilton in downtown San Salvador. And uh, it was absolutely beautiful. What do you want to know? Well, first of all, I kind of want to know what your issue was with going in the first place. If you're able to talk about that, if you're not, that's fine. But I think some people were wondering, I mean, you were all hell about to go about a month ago from what I recall, and then something changed. And then, yes, I'm going. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? No, 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 there's <laughs> no, I don't know. There's, there's just certain things that were going on behind the scenes. It's not what people even think um, in my life and stuff like that, that uh, was, a concern maybe going there security wise, but I, I was rest assured from people there that I wouldn't have any problems. I wasn't the only one concerned about that, to be entirely honest. And, uh, you know, Latin America is always somewhat of a powder keg and kind of in flux. And so you got to make sure that, you know, it's the right time and everything is okay. Uh, the What was interesting to learn there is, you know, we, we've seen what's gone on in terms of jailing their, um, uh, the gang members, the 66,000 or 70,000 people that had been arrested who are affiliated with the gangs who are holding that country hostage for so long. And, you know, there's still problems. There are still some, it's, it's much better than it's ever been. It's, uh, I felt as safe there as I do here and as I felt any other place I've ever lived. Clear, and there was, you know, security and police everywhere, so it was great. But, you know, you hear about from some things that people are concerned about, and they tell you, you know, we just want you to know. And that becomes like, okay, well, let's let's see if, let's just reconsider it and to make sure to dot all the I's and cross the T's before we get on a plane and go there. Okay, so you went. Um, you were invited, right? You were, you were invited to speak? Yes, I was uh, a speaker at the Adopting Bitcoin Conference. Okay, and... Uh... Is El Salvador the country that is most ahead in terms of utilizing crypto, using <clears throat> utilizing uh, Bitcoin? Is mm -hmm. that's the way it's been touted? Is that uh, El Salvador is, is sort of this bastion of freedom when it comes to the using of Bitcoin? But from what I understand, there's still some glitches. Is that right? I don't know if that it's it's so much glitches as it is uh, the adoption path forward. It's not like, you know, we've discussed many times before, changes in government is like doing a U-turn with a battleship, and it's slow and laborious. And so they made it legal tender in, what's it, uh, a couple of years now, or just over a year. The There is way more adoption there than most places in the world. Like you are in, a, you, in an Uber, you can pay with Bitcoin. I had wow. to get clothes for the beach in El Zante. I paid in Bitcoin. So that is because it's legal tender. Everybody technically has to um, has to use it. So that part, they're well ahead of of anybody else. And it was very interesting to go through that experience. But is it used everywhere? No, it's kind of like 
Look at it this way. When you go to a merchant in any place, North America, or as you were just in England, you're going to pay cash, you're going to be credit card, you're going to do Visa, MasterCard. Well, now you have another option, which is Bitcoin. And just because people have all those options doesn't mean they use them all the time. But it is more utilized there than anywhere else I've ever been. Okay. Well, that's a good sign. But obviously, you're going to go to outdoor markets. And it's unlikely that... Uh... Uh, you're going to be able to use it no. in, in that kind of environment. No, no, the opposite. So when I went to El Zante, yeah. which is uh, also known as Bitcoin Beach, that is where I had, I had to, I did one of the transactions in Bitcoin. And, you know, you're in a little hut on the beach in the sand, and they have a remote um, merchant service thing where you would pay, like, with a credit card, uh, and it also accepts uh, Bitcoin. So I was able to pay directly phone to their merchant machine while I was standing on the black sandy beach uh, in El Zante. So it was great. <laughs> that is stunning. I mean, given that, we are way behind, aren't we? But all that <laughs> is changing because, of course, all this talk about the ETF, the Exchange Traded Fund, that will focus on crypto, or focus on Bitcoin, from what I understand, and there's been all sorts of institutional purchases of Bitcoin. Now, the stories that I've been reading in the mainstream media, which are kind of hit and miss in terms of accuracy, is that it has actually had a an effect on the supply because it's uh, you know it's all about supply and demand in terms of pushing up the price. And as these institutions and their big bucks get into the market and purchase more and more Bitcoin, it's actually made it harder to get bitcoin is that true uh yeah this is where greg foss would pipe in and scream it's just math mark it's just <laughs> math uh yeah that's the whole point it's supply and demand and it is a fixed supply so nobody can go and make some artificial bitcoin and you know put that onto the ledger it doesn't work and that's why the thesis of people like foss and many others and now you know traditional finance is starting to figure this out is that there's no there's no direction for it to go other than up as more adoption uh, gets into the space just because your supply is so fixed. That's why, you know, in, in April, there's going to be a halvening party that Big Sean is um, is hosting. And that is a party where they're going to celebrate the next halvening where the daily supply of Bitcoin gets cut from 900 Bitcoin around the world to only 450 new Bitcoin per day for the entire planet. That that's that's how everybody understands it's going to increase in value. Wow! And uh, how much is it going to increase in value? I mean, I guess that's what people know, and and it's hard to say. I mean, you can't possibly know that. But I mean, something like that with only four hundred and fifty, you say four hundred and fifty Bitcoin per day. I mean, that doesn't sound like very. That's very very few Bitcoin. I mean, isn't it for the entire world economy? And I remember yeah. we're. We're at 20, there's 21 million coins that can ever be mined. And the last coin is going to be mined in approximately 120 years from now or something like that. And, but already 19 and a half million have been mined. So that leaves uh, one and a half million coins left for the next 120 years. And there are still, you know what, 450, 4.5 billion people on the planet who don't have access to basic banking. El Salvador had that problem when 70% of its population didn't have access to banking until they made Bitcoin legal tender. This was the whole point of it. 
And instantly, overnight, 100% of that country became banked because Bitcoin is both a currency uh, and a unit of account. So it allows people to participate in, uh, in the economy and it gives them a place for store of value. So they don't have to go buy you know, two, two or three motorcycles, an extra toaster, an extra TV, which is what happens in third world countries because people don't have faith in the currency, which is part of the reason that El Salvador dollarized. So this gives them an option. So half the planet does not have access to banking. Bitcoin is here, which will allow them to. And that, by the way, half that planet, they do have cell phones. And that's all you really need to get into, um, into the, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin system. So I guess the banks are not too happy about this. I mean, if uh, people are going to rely on Bitcoin and just doing transactions using their phone, and there are other things that you can use Bitcoin to invest in, interest-bearing uh, vehicles, as I understand it. I mean, you don't need the big banks. In fact, you don't really need any bank. I mean, are they looking at the tea leaves and wondering whether or not they're still going to be around in 10, 15 years? Is there nervousness in the banking sector as, as Bitcoin becomes more and more uh, used in countries like El Salvador? Uh, yeah, and that's why you start to see some of these, uh, you know, draconian um, measures for regulation from people like Elizabeth Warren in the United States who are trying to attack Bitcoin. But I think it's one of those things where you, you see this a lot in politics. Everybody gets into their camps and then they fight until one side just realizes, okay, they're not going to win. So it's time to submit and then reach out to the other side and find uh, some common ground. I think this is what I think is going to happen. I don't know if I mentioned this on your show. This is my thesis, that what's the most practical thing to happen? Because, look, all politicians are weasels. None of them want to make any decisions. And they all want to make everybody happy and, you know, try to take credit for it. So I think it's only practical that we're going to see legislators pass legislation that allows, and this is probably why they're pushing the importance of KYC, but that would allow the commercial banking sector, who has a lot of lobby power, to, uh, to um, release wallets for Bitcoin that will be custodial wallets. So the, the, the central, the, the bank, the commercial bank, will have access for people who are not like me, who don't want to self-custody their Bitcoin because they're confused by it. But it will allow the bank to deploy some sort of wallet for their client base. So they can hold their Bitcoin for them and they'll try to further incentivize it by making it an FDIC insured uh, wallet. And maybe because the central bank needs to print as much money as possible, which they use the commercial banking sector to do that. Maybe what they'll say is if you put some Bitcoin in our you know, commercial bank wallet, we'll give you a little bit of yield on that money, a couple of percent a year if you, if you store it in savings. And I think if you see that happening, that makes everybody happy. It makes the commercial banking sector happy because they're still relevant to the normies who don't want to don't want to self custody. Makes the legislatures happy. Makes everybody happy. As long as as long as they don't impede on my ability and the ability of other Bitcoiners and OG Bitcoiners, as long as they don't impede on our ability to self custody, everyone will be happy. BJ Dichter joining us on Saga. 960 uh, talking about uh, his trip to El Salvador we haven't really discussed what he told the assembled uh, in El Salvador he was invited to speak there and he, he just got back 
Vijay, what did you tell them? What was your message to the folks in El Salvador? I talked about the uh, the Freedom Convoy and how Bitcoin was the only money that was not uh, able to be frozen or blocked or, you know, the many things that went on during uh, Convoy. And it's still going on because it's still being legislated, litigated, sorry. But I spoke, I spoke about the story about that, despite the fact that I was very, very sick and <laughs> running on adrenaline and lots of medication. But I also talked about, you know, the importance of trying to persuade new people. I actually talked a little bit about you and what we do on wow. your show, trying to reach people who are not Bitcoiners and how to persuade them that Bitcoin and freedom money, or as I described it, the freedom protocol, is really for everybody. It's not about left or right, blue, red. It's about everybody having the ability to having a percentage of whatever percentage they want of their wealth to be stored in this protocol that can't be touched by anybody, that it's yours, it's secure, and as long as you store your passwords and your seed phrases that nobody else can access them, that it is protected and is protected over the long term. So that that's kind of the essence of what I was discussing, how we can reach new people and different tactics that we can use uh, just in general terms, suggestions, to bring people into the space. We did talk about the price of Bitcoin going up. I think it's at, uh, let's see, last price I could see is uh, 37,135 bucks. And so it's, uh, it's up dramatically. It's according to CNBC, it's up 88.49% this year, in one year, year over year. So it's almost doubled year over year, which, uh, it's certainly exciting to see, and I, I, fully, I listen. I think that because there, there's going to be panic buying of Bitcoin, <laughs> I think as people see the price go up, they're going, okay, I've missed the boat, you know, uh, when it was down to ten thousand and, and whatever, uh, but now it's it's going back up, and so if I don't jump on the train now, I'm, I'm going to miss it all together, and then end up having to buy whatever I can at you know 100,000 per bitcoin. So do you think that there's going to be panic buying of bitcoin in the not too distant future? Yeah, I think there's going to be a similar euphoria that we saw the last time there was a bull run and the time before that. Like every every cycle this happens. Remember we're talking about how many times you asked me over the past year, nothing's happened with bitcoin. Oh, it's just going sideways and I told you repeatedly yeah, it's mid-cycle. This is how Bitcoin just behaves. And as we get out of that, that sideways bear market, then all of a sudden when it starts to go parabolic, all the people that we told to buy Bitcoin at, I don't know, half of its current value start to, and they said, oh, Bitcoin is over. They instantly flip to, can, can I get cheap Bitcoin again? Like, why didn't I buy it? You know, like they, they call you and tell you how frustrated they are. That's just our behavior uh, in terms of buying this sort of asset. And it's really predictable. Happens every every cycle. So, yeah, of course there's going to be uh, panic buying, which is what we try to – I think others in the Bitcoin space as well as myself, we try to uh, prevent that from happening. That's why we talk about uh, Bitcoin so frequently and tell people just dollar cost average. Don't try to – play the market, don't worry about the price, just DCA overall. Because right now, if you had bought, uh, if you had DCA, dollar cost average, into Bitcoin when it was at its height at $69,000, you would be profitable at this point, despite the fact that it had dropped 
because it's in mid-recovery. We talk about this on, um, there's a Twitter space I'm on regularly called Toxic Happy Hour. This is what we were talking about a lot last week, is that if you got in at 69,000 and you just regularly DCA'd, you'd be, uh, you'd be well in the positive at this point. There was a story that uh, ran on Zero Hedge recently, and uh, I think you mentioned that it was written by a friend of yours. The headline is, it really doesn't matter who created Bitcoin or why. Rumors have abounded that Bitcoin was created by the NSA, the National Security Agency, or the CIA, or the Chinese Communist Party, or the (laughs) WEF. Going back at least as far as 2010 or so, they resurfaced over the past week when Dr. Mercola interviewed Catherine Austin Fitz, who's a very well-known, liberty-loving economist. And since then, uh, we've uh, numerous readers forwarded some choice quotes of their talk. And I guess some of it was around the... uh, origin story of, of Bitcoin. And uh, is this a revisiting of where it came from? And do you think it'll, it'll affect the legitimacy of Bitcoin if people don't know where it came from <laughs> and are kind of curious and maybe even wonder whether or not it's a CIA plot? <laughs> Once again, every time we start going into a bull market, the same stories, conspiracies, ideas. I'm not saying those are or aren't, but these same sort of recycled ideas start um, start getting uh, traction yet again. Every cycle this happens. Uh, I think most of us have been in the Bitcoin space for a couple cycles. We've just gone beyond that. Like it doesn't really matter. And I, I don't think it does. Uh, it was clearly, uh, from my opinion, uh, it seemed to be quite organic that it was a, a number of developers that were trying to solve this problem for decades, by the way. They were trying to solve this since the 70s, and people play, uh, built upon the work of previous developers that were there for them. You know, there was BitGold. Um, there, was, there was a bunch of them. And so they finally, you know, the, the Satoshi and the people around Satoshi, like it's not, yeah, Satoshi Nakamura, whoever that was, drafted the white paper. We think it's just one person. But there was a whole team of developers that were helping him, working on it, trying to solve problems, writing code that fixed issues, that sort of thing. So to say that that was, I don't know, a plot of a government agency, like I don't know a government agency that that's, that's that competent. Now, they're generally very, very incompetent. And I would question their ability to build something quite as effective as Bitcoin over the long term. But you never know. Uh, But it's not really important. What's important right now is it is, as I always call it, the freedom uh, protocol. Nobody controls it. Nobody can shut it off. Nobody can take your wealth from you. It's there. It's secure. It stood the test of time. And it even stood uh, the authoritarianism of the blackface regime that was trying to censor everybody in Ottawa. And you know what happened? Bitcoin proved its case because it did not get shut down because it can't be. Right, which is uh, one of the reasons it has persisted. But, you know, other cryptocurrencies have continued as well. There's some buzz around Ethereum, which is now over $2,000 per coin. And uh, Bitcoin Cash. And I I mean, I know how you feel about Bitcoin as really being (laughs) the only true and legitimate uh, 
cryptocurrencies, but these other ones have hung around for a long time. I mean, uh, isn't it possible that they have some value as well and will continue to do so going forward? <laughs> the Bitcoiners are, are losing their minds right now at you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> They're screaming at the I got Bitcoin, firstly, if you got, I don't know, Bitcoin Cash is a fork of, uh, of Bitcoin and is down, I don't know, 97%, 98% of its value against Bitcoin. That's the network effect. Uh, but the other thing is all these other uh, cryptos that you, cryptocurrencies, non-Bitcoin, are, uh, they're proof of stake. They're not proof of work. They're not decentralized. There's a foundation. There's a CEO. There's a company that's ahead of it. Well, we just went through that with our bank accounts being frozen in Ottawa when the government just basically by decree explained to the financial system why you will be freezing accounts. Well, that's the, pro that's the solution that Bitcoin solved. But if you have a centralized cryptocurrency that is proof of stake, that is run like in Ethereum's case on Amazon web servers. Like that's where it's hosted. It's not hosted on its own mining infrastructure and network. That's why Bitcoin is different. It's not, it's just a name that's different. It's the entire infrastructure and construction of it that's entirely different. Now, look, I know lots of people that are into speculation of cryptocurrencies and they're trying to, tr they're trying to trade because they're trading, they're chasing yield. Well, okay, but I was never a stock trader, just like I'm never gonna be a crypto trader. They're two different conversations. People who are chasing yield or building projects are not trying to solve the problem that myself and Lepard and Foss and everybody else are trying to educate people on, which is we need a savings mechanism that doesn't steal your wealth through inflation. That's what Bitcoin solves, which is an entirely different set of goals of other cryptos. And the other thing is, you know, people talk that people get confused by Bitcoin Cash because the guy who forked Bitcoin Cash, he was dead set on this is a payment system and the payments, uh, the, the payment fees have to be a certain level. And so Bitcoin created Lightning to solve that problem. But the, the, the issue is this whole the lens in which we look, look at Bitcoin, it's like any other product. You build a product and then you don't determine what your product is going to be. The market determines what your product is going to be. And the market sees Bitcoin as the strongest, most secure savings tool that is a hedge against inflation that the world has ever seen. That is why BlackRock and Fidelity and all these Wall Street firms are filing for ETFs so they can sell a Bitcoin ETF to people in their client base who have 401ks or in Canada's case, uh, RSPs or large uh, ticket investors that want to have a, a position on Bitcoin. They want to do it. They want to be able to offer an ETF and they'll custodial the Bitcoin, I guess, is how it's going to work. That is happening with Bitcoin. That's not happening with all these other assets. And I've heard, you know, we hear the rumor that perhaps they're going to do um, some sort of ETF filing for Ethereum. Two things. First, I just explained Ethereum is centralized. It's, it's a property, it's a property of a, of a uh, company that runs it through a foundation. And uh, the other thing is the Ethereum Foundation is the most favored cryptocurrency by the World Economic Forum. So right away, I'm out. <laughs> right, and I understand that. Uh, speaking of BlackRock... 
<laughs> Everybody's favorite company, yeah? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, those of us who love freedom mm -hmm. um, are suspicious, deeply suspicious of BlackRock. And so are you nervous about this behemoth, uh, which owns a huge chunk of the you know, S&P 500? I mean, wading into the crypto space to such a degree. I mean, does that give you the jitters? No, it's the best thing ever. Because remember, like, okay, and, and by the way, that's not an endorsement of BlackRock. Because a lot of Bitcoiners are not fans of BlackRock, and I get it. But, you know, everybody, people would, before the argument was, oh, well, Bitcoin's just kind of this fringe, uh, online, this sect of people. It's not really serious. Uh, I can't trust it. And uh, nobody believes in it. And regular people don't understand it. Okay, well, now the world's largest investment company on the planet with, what, $11 trillion under management or something like that is now trying desperately to get into the space. So is it just still some fringe uh, internet video game money that just nobody should take seriously? Or perhaps we were correct and now BlackRock agrees. And I had a conversation with somebody recently within the past couple of weeks, somebody who's, you know, boomer uh, demographic sort of thing and wasn't sure about Bitcoin. I don't know how even he, he brought it up in the conversation for whatever reason. And I said uh, he was, you know, skeptical, still skeptical of Bitcoin and its adaptation and acceptance by governments around the world and all that sort of stuff. And I said, well, and he knows what BlackRock is. I said, well, BlackRock, Fidelity, listed a few companies have all filed for ETFs, which are more than likely to get approved. And then once I said that, it's just all the resistance was gone. And he said, oh, yeah, it's just a little technical for me. But uh, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe there's maybe there's some credibility there. And that's what uh, BlackRock, we may not like them, but it gives – and I listen, I don't have an opinion either way on BlackRock, to be entirely honest. But whether you like them or not, it gives credibility to the space – Amongst the people who normally wouldn't give Bitcoin the time of day, now at least they're going to start to pay attention to it because they're going to hear more, more uh, conversation around it, right? And they can buy it. I mean, are you a buyer of the BlackRock crypto ETF? Well, it's not out yet, right? It's still. But I mean, once it is, I'm, I'm talking about what's. I mean, to your point, it'll likely be approved, which means that a whole lot of people can then wade into that space easier through their trading accounts uh i mean do you like that as an investment or are you just say well screw that just just buy bitcoin for me it's just buy bitcoin because i'm comfortable with it and i understand the space and i understand self-custody but i also understand for a lot of people that's not in the cards and then there's also you know people in the whole in the retirement class or people who are building for retirement like money that's locked up in your 401k or rsps you can't take that money and go buy bitcoin at least not as of yet but maybe you can allocate some of your um, your retirement savings account towards um, this BlackRock ETF. And I think that's what it's going to support a lot of. But who knows? We'll see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of El Salvador, there was another story making the rounds. The capture of an MS-13 leader exposes the U.S.-El Salvador rift. Uh, I think we'd spoken in the past about the rift between... Bukele, the leader of El Salvador, and the Americans. Uh, you want to wade in on this? I don't really know much. Like, there's a lot of questions, uh, question marks around this story because everybody who is um, affiliated with the MS-13 gangs are supposed to be in jail. 
Remember, they're all – everybody is locked up and they're getting something like 50-year uh, prison certain sentences which, with an additional, I don't know, 20 years or 30. Somebody was explaining to me the other day. It's, it's quite complicated. But the idea is they're locking them away for a very long time because essentially that country was held hostage by these gangs uh, for decades. But – so what's this guy doing getting arrested? Well, he was in Mexico, I think it was. Uh, how, how's he getting arrested? Um, shouldn't he be in those jails in, um, in El Salvador? So something's going on. And, you know, people, you know, the chatter behind the scenes is deals are being making, made when there shouldn't be deals being made. I don't know. I don't know the details of it. But uh, there's a lot of people starting to dig, trying to dig to, to figure out what is really going on there? Because as always in Latin America, there's always much more to the story, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I got to wrap things up. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Benjamin. All right, brother. We'll talk to you soon. BJ Dichter joining us on Saga 960. Quick break. Back with more on News Talk Saga 960 and the Mark Petrona Show after this. <laughs> 